want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. What's up? Hope everyone is doing well. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for watching over YouTube. This episode I've actually had in the queue for quite a while and I had every intention of releasing it before Sun and Fun. I just did not get it out. Recorded this back at Oshkosh with E3 Aviation Association. Phil Bozik is the guest today. Phenomenal story going to Georgetown as a 15 year old, speaking multiple languages, getting hired by a three letter agency, setting a world speed record across the Atlantic in a TBM. The list goes on. So we're going to have a fun conversation today. You'll hang around for a there I was story as well. As always, thanks to my Patreon supporters for making this podcast happen. You'd be surprised the number of subscriptions and things like that that have to happen in order to make this all come together. So thanks for keeping the lights on. Thanks for keeping the podcast going. As always, Patreon supporters get early access to these episodes, and I am trying and looking to bring more valuable content over to Patreon specifically. So thanks for Patreon supporters. If you're liking this content, if you go over Spotify, if you go over to Apple Podcasts, if you leave a rating review, I read all those. Make sure you're following the show. All that helps the podcast out. If you can't support on Patreon, no big deal. But if you do like this content, going over to Apple iTunes, going over to Spotify, and now going to YouTube, liking, subscribing, believe it or not, just leaving a comment helps this podcast get shown to more people. So please consider just taking the time to do that. With all that being said, let's jump into the episode with Phil. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's exciting to be here at Oshkosh 2022. For those listening, you might hear some jet noise, you might hear some engine noise, maybe some rattling with a little wind. We're still on the top of the die here. We've got TBMs in the back right here. It's an awesome setup. Uh, but Maybe the audio is not going to be quite perfect as the wind's whipping around right here, but thanks for joining me on the podcast, man. I decided to finally be able to reconnect and talk a little bit about you and your story. I really appreciate it. It's, it's, it's awesome to be here. It's always awesome to talk with you. The, the conversations go so many different directions, but it's always great. We always learn a little bit. We have a good time, and you know, it's always fun. So glad to be here. Yeah, we don't know what's going to happen here in the next 50 minutes to an hour. Like, who knows what rabbit holes will go down, but it'll be a Absolutely. few. Absolutely. So with that, you know, We'll kick it off, man. We'll kind of where it all began. You have a very interesting childhood. How that transitioned into college. There we go. Cool stuff. Everybody's gonna focus on that for a second. Very cool. That's a 38 taken off, which is cool. Um, Glad glad to be here. Awesome, thank you. America, all right, all right. All the sound of freedom. But interesting childhood. And then what kind of transition to uh, you know, the path you're on today. So can you talk to me a little bit, like what got you excited about aviation? What was your childhood like? Sure, um, so my childhood was probably very similar to what most people go through initially. Like I grew up in a middle class, kind of lower middle class family. 
um, aviation was not a part of it. I mean, every once in a while we'd fly coach somewhere, yeah. but for the most part we were that we'd get in the car, we'd go drive somewhere, and that was that was kind of my upbringing. Uh, the thought of flying an airplane, let alone owning an airplane or anything involving an airplane, was like didn't even cross the radar, not even on the scope at all, whatsoever. Um, and then something happened when I was in my very early teens that pretty much changed everything. And it was my father had a freak heart attack. Never really determined what caused it. Even during an autopsy, it was just one of those things. It was his time. And right in front of us, he just died. And it completely changed everything. Not just from the economic standpoint, right. but also from a motivation standpoint. He was 49 when it happens. Right. He's in better shape than I'm in now at 35. I mean, it was just, it happened. It was a life-changing event. And it made me really reassess and take some of the values that was at least instilled as a, as a child of moving and dedicating myself to something a little bit bigger, motivating myself to work a little bit harder. And so it was like, all right, what do I want to do in my life? I don't want to be in that same situation that maybe I finish and I leave my life unfinished. So uh, I said, let's, uh, let's kind of ramp this thing up and go fast. So that was, let's graduate high school at 15. Um, let's learn some languages. Let's learn Russian and Arabic. Let's, what do we do? It, it, you know, I, I don't know. My brain's wired in a really strange way. You've known me a few years. I think you realize like, I, I look at things, I analyze things a little different than probably most people. So I'm like, let's, let's do it. Um, and then let's go off to college a little early and let's, let's hammer that thing out because there's a big world out there with a lot of challenges. And let's see if I can just be a little cog in the wheel to make it better. So let's just bam, 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 make it happen fast and uh, take on the world. This episode is sponsored by Aura. How much of your life is exposed in the digital realm? I recently started using Aura and within a matter of minutes, Aura identified over 60 data brokerages that had my personal and private information. And the best thing is they automatically started opting me out of each of those data brokerages to help protect my privacy. Aura offers comprehensive identity theft protection. With Aura, I can rest easy knowing that my personal information is being monitored 24-7. Any unauthorized use or suspicious activity, and I get notified immediately so I can start taking action. Many of you know I travel routinely throughout the month, maybe five or six countries on average. Aura also offers a VPN to help protect me when I'm using public Wi-Fi networks or those hotel Wi-Fi networks, as well as antivirus protection to keep my devices safe. I love that I can manage all my passwords with Aura's password manager, which generates complex and unique passwords. I don't have to worry about remembering the complex passwords, nor do I have to use the same password for each site. Overall, Aura has helped protect my online and digital life. Aura's identity theft protection, VPN, password manager, and credit score monitoring help keep me safe. And Aura does this all from a web-based as well as an app-based platform. For two weeks free, risk-free, go to Aura.com backslash Afterburn. That's A-U-R-A dot com backslash Afterburn. Or click the link down below in the description and start protecting your online identity today. So kind of glossing over the fact that you speak a couple languages. You you went to Georgetown, correct? Yes. At 15. Uh, we'll dig into that a little bit, but I do want to back up. Do you have any siblings? And I do. I have, I have a younger sister. I'm incredibly proud of her. I know my father would be very, very proud of her. My mother's very proud of her. Um, she was thrown in the same situation a few years younger, and she's just done an amazing job. She's, she's taken over a, a business. She bought one of my businesses, and her and her husband have done an amazing job growing it. I'm so proud of them. They're just they're awesome, awesome people. They live really close to me, so it's kind of cool. Like we have a great, great relationship. She's one of my best friends, so it's it's very cool. That's incredible to hear. I mean, I can't imagine what you went through as a teenager losing your father. 
like the like you mentioned, like economics of the family change. You've obviously lost a father. Like there's a lot there to unpack. But that is one of those things <laughs> that I think can be a catalyst or the proverbial fork in the road that you can go down one of two paths. And you're either gonna go down the path that might we'll say lead you astray and get in trouble yeah. because again, you're a teenager and like I didn't know anything. Not that I know anything now, but definitely as a teenager, if I didn't have some bumpers up there, sure. but made, I would have made some serious mistakes. Uh, but what do you think like, pushed you to kind of pursue some things that, again, as a teenager, you had to be fairly mature to like have a drive to go out there and accomplish things? I would say, and this is at any age, this is as a, as a child, teenager, as an adult, you should always have some mentors in your life. You should have some people around you that have a little bit of wisdom they maybe want to share, a little bit of experience, life experience, and even just sometimes to be those bumpers, be like, hey, what, knucklehead, what are you doing? Yeah. And to have that, and I was very fortunate that I found some mentors that were really able to kind of help push me and drive me and help even push me further than I thought I could go. And it's like, oh, you throttle up and you think, hey, I, I, I've reached that limit. And it's like, oh, no, no, you didn't. You're going to go a little harder. You're going to go a little farther. Keep going. Keep going. And it's that motivation and it's that stuff that you kind of just you soak it in like a sponge. And if you do it right, and you, I mean truly do it right, as you get a little bit older, that's why I love giving back so much. And I love helping and inspiring people because I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for some of those people. Yeah. And I know that like even just the small things that we can do on a daily basis can help impact somebody to go change things now, a year, five years, 10 years, 50 years in the future. That's huge. And again, to realize that surround yourself with good people, seek those mentors out. And yes. then again, there is something that's probably right place, right time. Sure. And falling in the, you know, the right group of people yeah. that can kind of usher you and put those bumpers up there is a pretty big deal. So. There's probably some luck, but again, being smart enough to take that advice and that mentorship and yeah. pursue some of the things you did. I, I was really good at those fill in the bubble tests. You know, I just guess C on the pencil every time and I don't, you know, I mean, I just, right. it, it worked really well. As you're fluent in Russian and Arabic. You know, the fill in the bubble C, it was always C. So if you're watching at home, just fill in the bubble <laughs> on the Scantron test, C. You get it I, don't think they, I don't think they do Scantron tests anymore. I'm dating myself. Yeah. Um, but really yeah, old. yeah, I'm getting really old. But one of the things that everybody has in life, and this, this is kind of a cool thing that was told to me a long time ago, and I think about this every single day. We have three things in life that we are given of which we really only have control over a very small portion. The one we have zero control over is the date we're born. The thing that we have a little bit of control over, hopefully, is the date that we die. But in between that, there's this little dash and that little dash signifies our entire life. And what we choose to do with that dash is solely up to us. And you can do with it anything you want. So the question is, what do you want to do with that dash? That's 100%. And it's so easy. Like, we all have bad days, right? We all Absolutely. have pity, par pity parties. Like, I am 100% guilty of that. But, you know, unfortunately, coming from the business I came from, and it doesn't matter who you are, right? Like, you're going to lose friends and family. And that we just recently lost a buddy who's, you know, too young to go. Mm -hmm. But you realize that you're, it could be your time at any point, just like your dad, 49, that's way too young. Uh, so you got to make the most of what you have. And it's like, I hate running. I despise it. Uh, but I realized that, I, I thought I had Caleb Brewer on the podcast, right? Green Beret, stepped on a pressure plate IED, lost his legs. Guy has a phenomenal adaptive fitness gym now, like making the most out of what you have. And like Caleb, like probably would love to still have his legs, right? That's a yeah. fair assumption, but he, he doesn't have that. 
Uh, so being appreciative of the things that you do have, those little things that we take for granted, because it's so easy yeah. to do that. And again, I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. Sure. It's just realizing when you start going down the pity party path, like, shut up, like, life's pretty good. And it's not to say there's anything wrong with having a little freak out session. Yeah, you know, sure. I, about 18 months ago, I had a business deal that was kind of going sideways a little bit out of the blue. And I, I'll be the first to admit, for about 48 hours, it was like, oh my gosh, yeah. like, total implosion, didn't know what to do. like just had to like get it out of my system. And then it was like, okay, I'm here. We still have the problem. Problem's not going away unless we either do something with it. So it's like, let's drill down and let's start attacking this thing. Is that how, I mean, is that how, cause again, like everyone finds themselves in those situations where you're overwhelmed, everything's going sideways and it can be, you know, life-threatening to like a business deal, which is probably not life-threatening, but economically it could sure. be, right? So how do you kind of digest that and attack that problem? It's, it's look, to your point, whether it's a life-changing situation, life, threatening situation. First thing you look at is look at the whole problem. What is the scope of the problem? Is my engine on fire? Have I lost an engine? Is somebody shooting at me? Uh, did a business partner have a nervous breakdown? I mean, you can look at all these different things. What is the problem? Identify the problem. And depending on what that is, sometimes, and this, these are like memory items, how can you attack the smallest thing that can get the most immediate results and change it? You're not trying to solve everything on day one. Rome wasn't built in a day. Don't necessarily go that route. How can I make a small change right now to change the outcome of where the trajectory is today? 100%. And like, that's a big thing. Yeah, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. One bite at a time, you know? exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think Frank Underwood said that. Yeah. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great thing, right? It I is. mean, it's, it it, is. If you just, it's simple. Yeah. It, that's, and it applies to so many things. And it applies to so many things. So you just, you start attacking things. And it's also, it makes measured progress, right? It, you know, you want to run a marathon. You're not going to just jump in your running shoes and go down the street and run a great marathon. You're going to start running just down the, down the block. And you'll start increasing that. And over time, it all of a sudden starts to have that big result. But you can see the measured gains very, very quickly in a small dose. And that also helps get people to keep pushing and advancing their skills. Um, I mean, you're a, you're a hell of a pilot. But me, yeah. I didn't just get in the plane and like, oh man, it was great. I mean, I yeah. think my, uh, you know, when I got my T6, Tom Richard did my, my checkout with it. And I mean, he was going to throw water bottles at me. He's yelling and screaming at me. It was like, I mean, I'm never going to fly this damn airplane. Like it was work, but yeah. it was just going out every single day, perfecting it. Just, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this work. Each step is going to get better and better and yeah. better. And over time, it's unbelievable the results. Yep. It's just, again, one bite at a time. One bite yeah. at a time. Eat, eat the elephant. So jumping back, uh, Georgetown, 15. Uh, I would say that's... I was, I was 16 when I started, but yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So off by year, I would say 16 is probably still slightly uh, a abnormal. Younger, yeah. a little, the average age is a little older there. Um, how was it going through, as a 16-year-old, going through Georgetown? I mean, again, the maturity piece has definitely got to be a, a factor of it. I've always been a, like a little different. So, uh, you know, to me, it was more of like, I wanted to get through it. I wanted to make my way through it to get out into the real world. So I just had to conduct myself in a little bit different way. Sure, yeah. sometimes you're a little different. And people are like, oh man, he's like, uh, what's the Doogie Howser thing? You know, yeah. all right, whatever, whatever. But I mean, to me, it was just a matter of just like, I got a job to do, I'm here to do it. I'm gonna buckle down and get it done. I know what my end goal is. I know what I wanna get to. So I'm gonna just power through it, make it happen and do it. And I loved it. I had a lot of fun. I've had a ton of fun with it. And the things that I did then have led to some pretty cool results now. I'd say so. That first job out of college, yep. was that a, a three-letter agency or did you do yes. something different? Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I, I was fortunate enough to get picked up by doing some work for a three-letter, one of our three-letter agencies in the DC area. And uh, got to do some traveling around the world a little bit. 
see some uh, romantic honeymoon places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the best places. The I'm best sure. places, yeah, yeah. of course, of course. And um, wait, what was your language background? I'm sorry? What was your language background? Um, yeah, so yeah, I imagine some really, really super nice places based on that. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Club Med was great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, also eye-opening. Tra travel and experiencing things like that is truly an unbelievable education in the world and how things work, um, politics, uh, you, you name it. And so, you know, people always ask me, you know, what was it like? What, what you know, is it amazing? Is it like watching a, a James Bond movie or Jason yeah. Bourne? I'm like, it is 10% just full afterburner, amazing, awesome, 90% paperwork, 90% sitting around. So it's just giant stretches of boredom punctuated by pure, like, awesomeness. Yeah. Um, not kind of like on what we do when we fly. Takeoff and landing's pretty awesome and pretty cool for a lot of people. Long cross country, you're on autopilot, there's not much going on. Yeah, and again, that's a different world to jump into. And, you know, we kind of gloss over, for those who don't realize, a three-letter agency. You know, those are the people out there. We have a lot of three-letter agencies that sure. are government agencies that are, that are doing things that we don't talk about yes. or you don't hear about often. You're operating in the shadows, going out there, hopefully solving problems. Hopefully, but sometimes even those things that we kind of talk about, it's like, oh, like yeah, you work for whatever agency. That's got to be cool. That's the most amazing thing. There's a lot. I mean, there's a, there's got to be a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of politics that go on. I would imagine inside those as well. There is. There certainly is. But you've got some of the most dedicated people, the most dedicated Americans, working towards trying to find simple and complex solutions to extremely complicated problems. We live in a world that is just getting more complicated yet more interconnected yeah. geopolitically by the day. And so the solutions unfortunately are not getting any simpler and it's requiring us to start thinking outside the box more and more, especially even now in today's world. Our, our you know, 10, 15 years ago, our threat wasn't, I would say necessarily a near peer threat, not even close, yeah, not no, even remote. It wasn't even on the radar. Whereas now as we're starting to look and change and see how we're adapting, our future adversaries are definitely more near peer or peer level adversaries. It's interesting because you know, I've talked about this a good bit. I mean, this has been a discussion point, obviously for people much smarter than myself and much higher positions. Sure. But, you know, we spent 20 years essentially in uncontested environments, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria to a certain extent, Africa, where we have the freedom to operate, again, non-state actors, maybe state-backed actors. But I think really as General Mattis or then Secretary Mattis started to really pivot the focus on near-peer threats because as, you know, for instance, if we look to the West, um, there are state actors that are doing things that are challenging what I think we want as a country to maintain as a, you know, the number one or the dominant presence and be able to influence things throughout the world. So you were, during your time, again, it was probably mostly non-state actors that you're addressing. Maybe they were supported by state actors. Um, we only go so far, probably. It, it, it's changing. And so it means that, you know, people who are interested in pursuing avenues, both, you know, through intelligence agencies, through the military, have to start looking not, at, not only at the threats of today, but the threats of tomorrow. And while we're sure going to have those, you know, non-state actors that will come into play um you know we've been fortunate the last what 50 70 years we've had total aerial dominance globally right. i mean we have the ability to do things and that has the potential to change and we have to start thinking about what tech we can start employing that gives us that leading edge moving forward and you know some of that's developed through military channels some of that is done in the intelligence world um, there's a job for everybody whether you want to 
flight jets, whether you have language skills. I mean, in-demand stuff, uh, forensic accounting is huge. The ability to start digging through stuff. Yeah. We're getting more and more digital. The ability to understand that type of stuff and complex algorithm, algorithms to hide and move money, huge, huge things. Because that stops bad people from doing bad things when they don't have access to their money and something so simple. You know, and that's something like, all right, iPhone pops up into the world. How much has our world changed since the advent of the iPhone and how, I mean, everything is done differently. The pace at which technology is changing yes. is so fast, yes. which also is paralleled in the defense industry. Yes. Uh, and, we, and we go down the rabbit hole of unmanned aerial systems, yep. AI technology. That is gonna, lasers, that's just like scratching the surface of how the battle space is gonna change. And like, who knows what that'll bring, but it, I, it's probably, you know, analogous to, you know, trench warfare or really like, you know, civil war, just marching across the field in a line shooting versus when they realize the other side has a machine gun, this yeah. tactic is no longer valid. It will get everyone killed. I mean, the I mean, I, of course, nobody hopes that we're going to have a war, but, you know, the next major fight is going to be not just with, you know, weapons of missiles, bombs. It's also going to be on the cyber side. 100%. Cyber is 100% the future of where things are going. To be able to destabilize your enemy through electronic means and shut down their networks, you don't even have to attack their military hard assets. You can go after soft assets. You can shut banks down. You can shut a global economy or a regional economy down like this. And that changes the playing field and the battlefield. And, you know, so a couple examples, I think, to be, you know, that people know of out there, like, one unrelated to a cyber attack, but the power grid going down in Texas during the ice storm last year. Like, if you don't have power for weeks on end, like, there's something you take for granted that you can flip the switch on. And 100%. if you do lose power, it's usually only for a couple hours, right? Unless sure. you're in a disaster zone. The other one, living in Georgia, the Colonial Pipeline hack that happened last year. Yeah. If you wanted to see people start panicking, you would go just drive past a gas station. Yeah. And that was just a small sampling of what could happen. And I was giving the example actually yesterday, talking about some things that are out there, apps that people use social media wise that are out sure. there in the public that um, might not have their best intentions or the people who have influence over those applications don't necessarily have our best intentions. But like, could you imagine if you woke up one day and your bank account was zero and everyone's bank account was zero you can't swipe a credit card. Yeah. How do you buy food? Like, it's okay probably for a couple hours, but when the realization sets in that you can't buy things or do things, um, it's going to start presenting some pretty complex problems for people. And that's just, that's scratching the surface. Without digging down this rabbit hole, fear is the largest and the most powerful weapon in the world. Yeah, I and think it's scary when you can unleash something like that. And COVID's a prime example. You can see just how fast things can change and shift. I think we all saw, you know, good or bad, not up for, you know, we don't have to go down that discussion, but sure. looking at it, how things were executed and how things, policies, practices changed, things were canceled. Yes. Uh, life drastically changed overnight. Yes. And I would say there are significant changes that one that I just, I never would have thought sure. would have happened. I mean, I, I don't think, going back several years, three, four years ago, we would have ever thought that we would have just shut down our country. Like, I mean, to just completely go into a lockdown state. Like, it just wasn't conceivable. Like, really, we would do something like that? And so, take something like that and apply that to the battlefield. It changes the game completely. Yeah. So, that's why it's so important, though, that people that want to get involved in these things, you learn diverse skills. 
It's amazing how much just random interests, hobbies, skills can come together and make you a more effective warfighter. No joke. All right, we're gonna pivot here a little bit because obviously you did some time uh, doing things that we can't talk about here that I know are, I know 10% is interesting, the rest is not because I've been having been a government employee, I know. Um, but how, what was the transition out of working for the government to what you're doing today? And what are, what are you doing today? Yeah. Freedom. No, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, initially, so I, I ended up, you know, leaving the whole government thing, DC, coming back to, to Michigan where I was from and uh, investing in a small startup company that was distributing uh, light fixtures, the housings for light fixtures that go in office buildings and all that other stuff. Um, I don't understand, my, my background has nothing to do with business or numbers, I was never really great at math. Yeah. But somehow I rain manned this thing and took this just total like bankrupt joke of a company and just started to rapidly scale it and vertically integrate it. Um, you know, when you study different, you know, industries, you study everything from Fortune 500 company to a drug cartel. Yeah. They all kind of do the same thing. They're vertically integrating every aspect of the manufacturing distribution of the product. So we ended up going and purchasing some of our suppliers and the reps that distribute the products um, and then the distribution level. I was able to scale something that did about 900000 a year and turn it into a $65 million company. Slight improvement. Just, just a slight improvement. Yeah, just, just a slight improvement. Um, hard, it, hard work. I mean, I went from you know, obviously government, government employees, people who are in the government sphere, not massive, not massively rich. You're not going to get rich doing no. government jobs ever. If you do, something, something's wrong. You're Some, something's wrong. Yeah, the insider trading thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, I moved into my mother's basement and drove a used Honda Civic the first year. It was total sacrifice. People looked at me and they were like what is wrong with you? What are you doing? And it's like, I have this vision. I see the plan. I see the, I see the end game out of this. I just have to string this and make this work to get to that. But I see where we can do with this. And uh, that company was profitable in 11 months. Uh, within 36 months, it was really humming along nicely. I mean, it was, it was an extreme rapid trajectory on this thing, but it was, it was getting the buy-in, not only of myself, but getting the senior staff and even getting, I mean, everybody from the guys who are working on the line to buy in. This is what we're doing. We are changing something for everybody and we are gonna do great things together. And you can't succeed in life if the team behind you doesn't do it. Like, it's, it's great you're interviewing me. This is really cool. But like, I wish you could interview the people around me because they're way more, they're way cooler than I am. They are way more interesting than I am. I'm just the guy who happens to own the thing. They're the people that help make it happen every single day, no matter what, what I'm doing. They're there showing up, giving 110% to make this happen. And those are the real like unsung heroes of this. I think the people who figure it out, right? You can do a lot as a single ship, but you can't do as much as if you get a, a effective fighting force surrounded with yeah. a bunch of great wingmen. Um, yeah. That was in my demo time, like highlight of my you know, Air Force time. But it wasn't like obviously flying around was awesome, right? Sure, sure. But the reason it was so successful was because of the guys on the team who were so dedicated. Like that was the fun part. They made it happen. And so when you can find a team like that, and you can hopefully take care of them, treat them well, like. Like the sky is the limit, I think, as far as going out there and accomplishing whatever the objective is, whatever sure. the mission is. So, pretty cool. But at this point, like you had no aviation experience, still, yeah, right? Yeah, no, I, I had. I was not a pilot. I, I had none of that. So, the the thing that started to unlock it, besides the fact that I'd been traveling around on a bunch of airplanes, didn't fly, and I'm always just talking to the pilots, thinking this was cool. And I had this thought, probably, probably in my early 20s, like, hey, maybe one day, you know. 
I have just enough money I can buy like a little old Cessna. I didn't even know what type of Cessna it would be. It's a little yeah. Cessna plane everybody talks about. Right. And I can go fly around on the weekend and I'll have fun. It'll be cool. Well, you know, fast forward years and years later, all of a sudden, you know, now I'm, uh, I'm spending like 250 plus nights a year in hotels. I'm like on airplane Delta flights all over the country. It's awesome, but like I have no quality of life. My quality of life is just nothing. And I woke up in Louisville, Kentucky. I'll never forget. It was about three o'clock in the morning. It was a late summer uh, thunderstorm that woke me up. I didn't know what city I was in because all the courtyards all looked the same. And for about 20 seconds, I'm like, I don't know where I'm at. And I'm like, yeah, no, we, we, this is like just, oh, like, I, I have no clue what's going on. But yeah, we got to change this. We got to change this really, really quick. So uh, I immediately started inquiring about flight lessons. I was like, you know what? what let's, see what we, let's see what we can do. Two little flight schools on the, on the local airport. One of them had a really old rusty airplane. I was going to stop in. I'm like, I just going to keep driving. Yeah, right. And then I found a flight school that had a, a late model uh, G1000 172. Okay. And I was like, yeah, this is kind of cool. I'm kind of a nerdy tech guy. I like this stuff. And uh, I was hooked. I mean, I was completely hooked. Um, I think I was about 35 hours in. I was not even done with my private. And I was like, yeah, I can't get across the lake to Milwaukee to one of the manufacturing sites. I need to head down uh, to Florida a lot. So I ordered a Twin Star, DA42 Twin Star, sight unseen. It was just kind of like, this is uh, talking like, towards the end of the recession at this point. Okay. Uh, there's not a lot of inventory. No one wanted to take me serious. I think I was like 20, I was like mid twenties at the time. Okay. So I was just like, hey, I, I have a cashier's check. This is what I want. Can you make it happen? And they just dropped it off. I didn't have it. I just got my, the day they delivered it, I got my private two days later. No multi, no instrument, no clue. Right. Like just total like ignorance is bliss kind of thing. Right. And it was like, all right, had a great instructor. I'm like, all right, let's get this multi knocked out this weekend and let's let's figure this thing out. And we did. I think I flew that plane like 1,400 hours in two wow. and a half years. Scaled, um, ended up selling off the original lighting business and then investing in commercial real estate and some other companies. Um, so I guess what it is I do, I long story short on all this, I invest in people, concepts, companies that make sense, that can help do good, help you know grow and scale. And it, it's extremely diverse. I invest in everything from you know software technology to agriculture to car washes. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it's so random, but yeah. I, I'm, I'm totally okay with that. I love that. It's super cool. Everything is different. Everything is different. Every hat I put on all these different hats, and it's just totally different. But we have a couple of rules with the companies, and it's all under one umbrella. And I'm like, look, don't be an asshole. And if you have to be a little bit of an asshole, that's fine. Just don't be a douchebag. Yeah, like, yeah. Nobody wants to be around that. Everybody hates that stuff. Be a good person. At the end of the day, just be a good person. Be ethical. You know, you know, take care of people because at the end of the day, they will take care of you. And have fun. Like we came out of a suit and tie world for a while, and I'm like, I'm so sick of that stuff. So you know, people always got to wear. You know, I, I'm a shorts, t-shirt kind of guy. You know, tucking a button down every once in a while. But like, we have a super chill, laid-back culture. Um, and I love that, and it's fun. Everybody enjoys it. They get to spend time with their family, having aviation resources like a TBM, which is an unbelievable aircraft. Yeah. Let's us get around day trips, quick overnights. It's just really, really awesome. And aviation has really become my hobby. People are like, so what do you like to do? I like to fly. Like, that's awesome. Like, what else do you like to do? No, I really like to fly. Like, I don't think I can stress that enough. So, you know, I, I have started to collect some cool warbirds and fly a lot. 
Uh, had to do some amazing flights. Got to fly with uh, with Toro last year at Oshkosh. Yeah, that's some cool. Yeah, uh, yeah. with P51s and bring in some bring in Viper demo. And just the experiences are very very cool. The people you meet are very cool. One of my closest friends, TBM owner, um, awesome awesome guy, literal rocket scientist. He got a PhD in aeronautical engineering. Doesn't do anything with it, but that's what he got because he thought right. it was cool. Right. <laughs> he, he operates on a whole different wavelength. He's just wicked smart, wicked good guy. Um, he uh, he called me at about four o'clock in the morning. This is several years ago, and he's like, "Hey," and I get the call, and I'm thinking, "Oh my god, like something's gone wrong. Yeah, there's an accident." And, and he's just like, "Hey, there's this world record between New York and Paris. It was set by uh, it was a Charles Lindbergh was the original, but it was last done by uh, Chuck Yeager about 40 years ago. You want to break it?" I'm like. Yeah, sounds great. I'm going to call you in a couple hours. Talk to you later. Bye. Like, what? So that led to about a year of planning. And uh, we ended up taking and converting a TBM 930. Was, it, was this your TBM? Or we, it? No, we used, we used Dirks because okay. it was total modification to the fuel system. So we okay. ended up plumbing an extra. So the TBM holds approximately 300 gallons of fuel. Okay, how far can that get you on average? About 1,750 miles, give okay. or take. So not quite across the not quite, not quite across the pond. Nope, yeah. we're gonna make that. So we decided we take out the interior and we plumb in a 300 extra gallon fuel bladder inside, plumbed into the right wing, which would give us you know twice the range on that. Then on top of all that, we're gonna create a software program that analyzed historic and current wind data from every country bordering the North Atlantic with a 10-year historical average to pick the window that would give us the most optimal tailwind for this flight. We wanted to have a tailwind on our six, didn't have to go straight across. And if you actually look at the path we did, we needed giant S-curves because for the entire flight, we had about 146 knot tailwind on our wow. six direct. Wow. So. How, I don't know how, like, where you're gonna begin, how you start with that, but like, in fact, like, even like coming up with a wind model, like, and the data's out there, right? I know it's there, but like, yeah. That's mind-boggling. This is just, and it's just a random idea that he thought of one night, like, hey, let's go do this. It was a random idea. Yeah, why not? What was the process to one? Because I imagine there's not many fuel bladders that go in TBMs. Yeah, I'm sure it's correct. Something. But what was the process of designing that, getting that approved? Yeah. Because it's not an experimental plane. No. What was that like? So it took 366 days exactly to do the whole planning from start to finish on the process, and uh, we started with. Uh, Literally, first sourcing a fuel bladder. Company okay. in New Zealand, Turtle Pack, makes unbelievable tanks. Um, they're designed, and we wanted to say it was heavy duty. We didn't need 300 gallons of fuel sloshing around uh, inside a TBM, you know, 1,600 miles offshore. How did it all end? Well, let me tell you how well, it Let me ended. tell you, right? Yeah, it was terrible. Um, so Turtle Pack designs these things that they can actually be dropped from helicopter okay. into the bush. So it's like, okay, if you can drop from a helicopter and it survives that, good start. Good yeah. start to the whole thing. So we sourced, the, we sourced it. We worked with Daher, who was an unbelievable partner, totally supportive in this, to figure out how we could plumb this into a fuel tank, because right. pressure vessel, we got to puncture through that. Um, FAA was amazing to work with. I mean, they get a bad rap. They get a bad rap. On occasion. On occasion. You know, like, we're here from the government, we're here to help, right? We're right, happy yeah. You're not happy. You're not happy, exactly, exactly. They were unbelievably supportive. After they had a few conversations, they realized we weren't yahoos. We weren't just two knuckleheads who were gonna hop in an airplane and just go out and do something. Yeah. But yeah, this is really cool. We can work with you on this. So we did engineering studies with the manufacturer, with Daher. We took off approximately 2,600 pounds over gross weight, which is pretty substantial. 
yeah, I know there's an engineering design limit and there's a factor of like what 150% usually, but that seems like it might have might have tripped that. Yeah, we, we were definitely uh, on the high end of that, but the key was we were within CG. We and, were, that, and Dyer, were the, their engineers helping you guys out? Yes, kind of they, they completely helped us out with that. We were complete within CG as long as we kept our front two seats in the full forward position, which meant we wore Gumby suits up to our waist. And like, I think I had indents in the bottom of my knees from being up against the dash for eight and a half hours. I think I had them for like two weeks afterwards. There's no mobility whatsoever in it because then the tank was completely wedged against the seats to keep it far enough forward to keep our CG great. We could not have full aft CG. Um, so that was that was one of the considerations. We knew that right off the bat, and that's how I was gonna be. So all right, you okay with it? I'm okay with it. All right, it's worth it, let's do it. So all this engineering kind of comes together, takes literally a year to do all this. Um, lots of last minute things, getting the 337 paperwork from the FAA approved, getting everybody set. Um, Daher was amazing. Rice Lake Air Center in Wisconsin helped work through the FISDO. Took care of everything. It, it were was the one, I mean, were they the ones cutting into the fuel tank yep. and yep. figuring out all yep. that? Yep, it was all plumbed in behind the leading edge boot to the right fuel tank. Did an amazing job. I mean, it was absolutely flawless. So then, now we come to this event and uh, like we should do a trial run. Well, we've been spending so much time getting this done, it's now like the day before we're gonna do all this. Like, let's do a trial run. So we take off out of Rice Lake, which is uh, in northern Wisconsin, to fly to White Plains, which is where the start of this whole world record begins. Fill up the fuel bladder, takes off. TBM's an amazing animal. She's still climbing 2,600 pounds over gross weight, and she's climbing at roughly 12, 1,300 feet a minute. Oh, yeah. Which is, which is not bad, which yeah. is not bad at all. Uh, yeah, somewhere 2, over 2,600 pounds over gross over weight. Over gross yeah, weight, yeah, and yeah. she's still climbing at that, yeah. right? So we're somewhere over Lake Michigan, and all I remember is, you know, uh, 444 Charlie Delta. Yeah, there's a triple seven, a thousand feet above, I don't know, about five miles. He's going to be passing over. Should be no factor. Should be no factor. Great. Okay, sounds great. We're just sitting there chugging along. We're fat, dumb, and happy. Everything's great. We still have 270 gallons in this bladder, 300 in the wings. Everything's just hunky-dory. And see the triple seven go right over the top of a super cool and then all of a sudden, the plane just lurches hard right, hard left, and did about three times. I wasn't even concerned about the wings, the plane, anything. All I cared was I looked back at that fuel bladder to make sure she didn't roll into the back. We nicknamed her Big Bertha. Yeah, so we, we wanted to make sure Big Bertha went nowhere. She was jiggling, but she didn't move. I don't know if it was a G5, it was, you know, it was a private business jet going underneath that A380 yes. a few years ago. Yeah. And it totaled it. It like ruined yeah. the whole thing. They rolled. I mean, there's blood in the cock or in the uh, the, the cabin. cabin. Yeah, yes. I mean, like, wake turbulence can be incredibly nice. So those are familiar, like flying underneath a big old plane with a lot of dirty air that's coming off from it, generating lift, disrupts the air. It drops down, and that's why you have wake turbulence separation. But yeah. you know, usually it's fine, but it can get really sporty really quickly. It's sporty, and so we were in it. And so. Having had that, you know, a few minutes later, everything's uneventful, we're good, and there's no damage or anything like that. I was like, all right, the tank is good, Big Bertha is good. Yeah. And so that, that, was a, that was a good uh, little experience and learning lesson yeah. uh, that we took from that. So landed in White Plains, we refueled, we set up, and we took off three minutes after midnight, and it was eight hours and 36 minutes from White Plains, Westchester County, directly across the Atlantic to Liberge. Um, for the record, and it was great because as we're, we're going out now, the FAA is involved. Every controller, every center knows all this. Oceanic knows about this. EASA knows about this. Everybody knows. So the goal is we get prime routes, and they actually allowed us to pick our own route across the Atlantic. We made our own track based on the latest wind report that was being generated every six hours. 
So we picked this great thing. All right, all right, just give us the course you want. You'll get whatever it is you want for the record. That's awesome. Which is so cool. Like yeah. Again, I can't go enough to say how great they were to work with. So every center though was like, uh, TBM, you're going to, 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 to Paris? Really? <laughs> it, was just, it was just awesome. And then other people on the frequency like, you guys are going to Paris at a TBM? Like what? How's that possible? How is that possible? Um, cool things to see across the Atlantic. And I mean, I, you, get, you see probably a little bit of it flying, some of the heavies across giant stretches of ocean. Seeing the northern lights, seeing yep. stars, um, you know, sunrises around 2.30 in the morning, somewhere over the middle of the North Atlantic, which is kind of cool to see. Um, you know, funny stuff. At one point, Dirk, like I said, one of my best friends, great guy, but he does a lot of mental math. That's his thing. He doesn't, he'll do paper, but he does it in his head first. Then he does the paper. And at one point, I'm, I'm not dozing off, but I'm just kind of like, all right, I just need to catch a couple winks. And all of a sudden, I just hear, I don't think we have enough fuel. That's not what you want to hear. Not what I want to hear. And I just remember, I didn't, I didn't say anything. I just kind of like opened my eyes fully, <laughs> straightened up, kind of like slowly turned him and said, I'm sorry, can you say that one more time? A little slower. I don't think we have enough fuel to make it to land or to make it to Paris. I'm not sure. Like, what were your diverts? Like, did you have, I mean, I'm sure you had trip points if you did Absolutely, have a, we, yeah. could, we could have gone up to Iceland quite easily. We could have gone to Ireland, the UK, um, Portugal. I mean, we had options. We had plenty of options. Um, we also had uh, marine radio on board. We had shipping routes with current yeah. locations of ships. Um, I mean, we brought scuba bottles. We brought, uh, Everything. If we need to exit the aircraft right. one way or another, and you know, in the worst case scenario, if everything went, you know, we had raft on board. If everything went to crap, we uh, right before takeoff, we each got uh, two, we like tequila. We each got two bottles of Don Julio, and we signed them to each other and presented them to each other and said, "Hey, if it all goes wrong, we'll get on the raft and we're gonna we'll, we'll go out really happy." Right. And, and you know, it'll be all right. So we we were prepared. You know, all the essentials: tequila, Don Julio total essential for doing a world record. Yeah. When you get in that raft from the North Atlantic. Uh you're going to need something to ease the pain for about, you know, five minutes until it's all over. Until it's all yeah, over. Yeah. Exactly. 100%. So, um, yeah. So, you never saw somebody at that point turn on the light in the cockpit, get out paper, and start crunching numbers between him and I. And it's like, I'm looking at the computer. The computer's right. But we learned something about the TBM that I don't think most people realize. And I think Dyer may know or Garmin knew. Once you use up all the fuel that's in the main tank, it doesn't actually keep counting fuel that's flowing in from your bladder. Which makes sense because... It doesn't know how to do that. The right. computer was programmed to hold 292 usable plus the overflow tanks. You know, that, that's all it knows. That? So the computer became useless. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, we had to do all mental math. Like, cool. cool. Like, all right, yeah, it was a little you know, terrifying for a brief moment. But at right. that point, it was like, all right, we're literally on paper figuring this thing out. At which point, he determined. Can, I mean, you can obviously see the fuel, the, the bladder depleting. Absolutely. So you know it's flowing. Because that's something I'm thinking is like, all right, if my meter is not ticking up, not knowing yeah. that's a factor. Hindsight's 2020, that makes sense, but like now I'm concerned, yeah, is it not flowing through? And, and, and part of what led to this was the winds aloft, the jet stream shifted and kind of did a little dog leg in the six hours between our reports. Okay. So we caught it about 200 miles later than expected. So we were forecasting about 140 knot tailwind, and at this point, I think we had like a 65 knot tailwind. Oh yeah, big then difference. All, a huge difference. And then all of a sudden, we caught it from the shift, and then it was all fine. But we're doing the math, and at one point, we was kind of like, oh, I think I transposed a number wrong in my head. Like, just don't wake me up that way, or cool. don't 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 nudge me that way by saying I think we're not going to make it to land. Please, I appreciate it. I Thank my, you. I want my heart to keep beating here. I don't want you to keep beating. Yeah. But uh, that part worked out. We were just absolutely hauling. I mean, we were at ground speed at one point, you know, 470 knots. Then a TBM, which is which is kicking. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great, uh, great tailwind. And at this point, now we're over London, and we're still at 31,000 feet, cooking along. 
And it was interesting. So Dirk flies his TBM to Europe several times a year. He's like, I've never been this high up. I'm like, it's part of the record thing. They're going to let us do it. And he's kind of like, this is so strange. As soon as we get over to French uh, air traffic control, first thing out of the must, did you get the record? Because they're very excited that a French aircraft yeah. is going to beat Chuck Yeager yeah. and an American, which is Cheyenne 400 LS, to get this record. And I said, it doesn't, the clock doesn't stop until our wheels touch down. That's it. So it was pretty cool. So I said, okay, what do you need to get the record? And at this point, we, we probably thought we had it, but now we're just trying to make up points. Yeah. And so I'm like, I need to go direct to the field, and I need the latest ascent you can give me. So he's like, all right, you're cleared direct to Libourget, stay at 31,000 feet. I think we were 30 miles away from the airport. And he's just like, all right, you're cleared to 3,000 feet. And it was just like, and just drop that thing down. And we were just cooking down. And at this point, we had about 90 gallons of fuel left on board. We didn't have a lot. We were more than enough for the TBM. But like right. we were light. It was just to nose that baby down and go. And you know, we touched down, and it was eight hours, 36 minutes. We beat Chuck Yeager by about an hour. That's awesome. That's so cool. I mean, the fact that you guys did that, the engineering goes into it. I'm also just latching on to like the red tape and bureaucracy of the FAA. And overcoming all those hurdles, the fact that you guys were doing it and it worked out so well is pretty cool. It, it, it's awesome. And I mean, and we did all this stuff. We had to do NAT HOA training. We had to do all sorts of training, oceanic training and all the routes. I mean, we learned so much about all this. We got all our little certificates, presented it, and the FAA was completely fine with us doing it. Were you guys doing HF radio across the Yes, those? yes. Oh, yeah. So that, we did HF radio. We also had um, satellite radio. So we okay. could also have SATCOM. So we could make calls. I would say it was about a 50-50. Yeah. That, uh, the HF was going through versus doing the, uh, the satellite. So a little bit of both. It was fun to do it. Obviously, here in the United States, we don't really use HF radio very much. Right. So it, that was kind of a cool thing to do, and it was just a good experience to learn something. Well, that's awesome. So as we wrap up here, I always like to ask my guests, you know, all right, if you found 15 or 16-year-old you, which maybe I need to back it up, if you found like 12 or 13-year-old you walking down the street, is there any advice you would give him, tell him to do something different, different point out? I would say don't worry about what other people think of you. Don't worry about what other people think is going to happen to you. You know inside yourself what you're capable of. Maybe not all the way, but you know what you can do. Go out and do it. Spectators sit on the sidelines and players get on the field. Boom. Simple as that. I love it, man. Thanks, brother. I really appreciate yeah, it. Absolutely. Anytime, That's brother. Fun. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, consider liking, subscribing, leaving a comment review over on YouTube. Apple Podcasts and Spotify that helps this podcast get shown to more people. And if you're interested in supporting the podcast via Patreon, you can click the link down below and become a Patreon supporter and get early access to these episodes, There I Was Stories, and much more. So until next time, I'll see you around.